this morning. Please turn to uh, the book of Romans, chapter 8. The book of Romans, chapter 8. Pastor mentioned before that he gave me about a, a month's notice. I uh, think the first time it was about two hours or so. So, yeah, But you would think that that would be a, a huge benefit and everything, but you've got to hear me out. When Pastor told me and asked me to preach, I had assumed he wasn't going to be here. And so I had my whole tulip outline planned out. I was going to have a petition go around, see if we all wanted to switch this thing over to Brian's house on Saturdays and just go on with house church. And uh, I guess we'll just save that for a rainy day. But you're in Romans chapter 8. You're in Romans chapter 8. You know, we just sang a song this morning out of Micah 6 8. And it said that he has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And if you turn to Romans, Romans chapter 8 and you go down to verse 28, the Bible says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That's a verse that you often hear misquoted or only partially quoted. Sometimes you might be going through your Bible app and you'll see you know, a caption. You know, God's working all things together for good. They just leave it there. That's only part of the truth. You just got to read the rest of the verse. The rest of the verse, you got to start from the end and work your way up. Because God's only working things together for good. It's going to love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. That's how I know. Now, God might be working things for good in other people's lives that aren't saved, that don't love God. He's merciful. But if you want to know for sure if God's working things together for good, whatever it is that you're going through, you've got to fall in these last two camps. Now, this isn't the focus of the message this morning, but let's not be scared of it. At the end, it says, number one, you've got to be called according to his purpose. Read the next couple of verses, and that word called shouldn't scare you. All that's talking about is if you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're saved this morning, can I tell you right now, you are called according to His purpose. Pastor Pat preached a couple of Sundays ago, and he's been preaching about the will of God. Pastor Pratt had preached and talked about predestination. He used that analogy that if you got into a plane that was chartered and predestined to go to Houston... It was your choice to get on the plane, but once you got in, you were predestined to go where that plane was going. Amen. And if you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the next couple of verses, 29 and 30, talks about the ones that he foreknew, how he predestinated it, that you would be called, that you would be justified, you're saved by faith, you're justified and declared righteous before God, and in this foreknowledge, one day you're going to get a glorified body. That all applies to you. So when it says called according to his purpose, if you're saved here this morning, say amen. amen. That applies to you. Go out a little further. That love God. Again, this isn't the focus of the message this morning. I'm going to give everybody the benefit of the doubt that if you're here this morning and you're saved and you're here to listen from God's word that you love God, amen. maybe you're trying to love him more. If that's not the case, you've gotten bitter. Don't go anywhere. Keep listening in. But I want to focus on that first part. That if you're saved and you love God, I want to remind you that there's a promise here in Romans 8.28 that God is working things to 
together for good. For good. And so we're going to spend some time here. We're going to get God's perspective on what that means. But today I want to focus on the goodness of God. We're going to do some teaching from God's word, get some perspective. Stay with me. We're going to turn to some verses and then we're going to dig a little bit deeper in the goodness of God to make this thing practical. Because like pastor said, I don't know what you're going through. Some of you are going through the water, through the trial. But I want to remind you that no matter what that thing is, there's a promise about the goodness of God and God is working it together for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, Lord. Lord, I just thank you that you're so good. Lord, I just pray that you would right now remove me out of the way, Lord, and I just pray that you would show your people what you showed to me this week, Lord. Show your people, if nothing else gets accomplished this morning, Lord, just how good you are. We love you, Lord. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they would just have a soft and heart and hear from your word, Lord. And I pray for their salvation, Lord. And for those of your people this morning that might be in the valley, Lord, I pray that they would just look up to you, Lord, and just be reminded of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. I said we're going to do some teaching, so let's turn back to the beginning. Turn to, with me to Genesis chapter 1. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. And I just want to remind you of a truth of God's word that from the beginning, God is good. Right there in the beginning. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, God is creating the heaven and the earth. First four words of Genesis chapter 1 are in the beginning, God. And it's been said before, we'll say it again. If you can believe the first four words of your Bible, that in the beginning, God then the rest of the Bible starts making a whole lot of sense. If you don't believe those words, then this really doesn't, doesn't really do much for you. But if you believe there's a God so big that he created this world and created you, then you can believe about his love and the things that he's called to work out in your life. And in Genesis chapter 1, God is creating the heaven and the earth. And we're going to skip over some verses here in verse 3. First thing he does, it says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Keep going down with me. In verse 9 he says, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. Go down to verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Keep going. Down to verse 16. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night. And to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Follow me, verse 21. God created whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind. 
and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them. God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And in verse 31 it says, And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. In the evening and the morning, we're the sixth day. I want to point out to you, we just saw these verses that God is creating the earth. And every time he creates something and brings something forth, he says it's good. It's good. See, good's a word that a lot of times we, we cheapen, right? If someone tells you you did a good job, you feel like, oh man, I could have done better, right? I want to do a great job. I want to do an excellent job. I want to do a perfect job, right? But it's kind of like the word love, how we just throw that word out there and we cheapen its value. But I think there's something important about the fact that when God just starts at the very beginning, you know how he describes his creation? He calls it good. There's something just simple about when God's involved and it's just God and it's untainted by the world. You know what God calls it? He just calls it good. It's just good. So in Romans 8.28, it says that he's working all things together for good. Don't cheapen that. There's something significant and powerful about God working something together for good. Because that's how he describes everything in Genesis chapter 1. We go down to Genesis chapter 2. Slip over the page. Genesis chapter 2. After God forms man, he puts man in the garden. Everything is perfect. God is in control. And he looks and he sees that man is alone. And so it says in verse 18, you know why God made Eve? You know why God created, uh, provided Adam a help me? He said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him help me for him. God wasn't just concerned about his creation being good and looking and being pleasing to him, but he wanted to make sure that the man that he created, the one that was created in his own image, that things were good for him. Wanted to make sure that things were good for Adam. Wanted to make sure that Adam could depend on God's goodness. And so he made Eve. But you know what else God did? Go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. He planted that garden eastward in Eden. And out of the ground, in verse 9, he made the Lord to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God put that right in the garden, right in that place of blessing in Adam's life. He gave Adam right there a choice every day. He told Adam later in that chapter, in verse 16, he says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. You know, if you think about the children of Israel when they were in the promised land, when they were in that physical place of blessing that God had given them, that they had enemies around them, and Joshua had instructed them to choose ye this day whom you will serve, 
Moses told them that he had, God had set forth blessing and cursing. He gave them a choice. If you're in a place of blessing with God right now, maybe you're on the mountain. Do you know something? Because God gave you a free will, even though some people don't believe that you have a free will. Do you know who does believe that you have a free will and who prays on the fact that you have a free will? The devil knows. The devil knows. And evil's never too far away if you get your eyes off God and you start listening to that voice. Because that's what happened to Eve in the very next chapter. See, God put that tree in the middle of the garden of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve had a choice. And the devil tempted her into eating of the fruit of that tree. And if you look at Genesis chapter 3, he said that it would make her wise. Make her wise. She would be like God. Being able to discern between good and evil. Verse uh, Genesis chapter 3. And it says in verse 5, it says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You know, the only thing that that tree offered them way back in the garden was the knowledge of evil. And Eve ate of that tree because there was some part of Eve that just wasn't satisfied with how good God was. The place of blessing with you and God, and we're going to talk about it this morning, is when God is on the throne, where God's doing the work, where you're submitted to his authority, and God is right. And if I disagree, i got to line myself up back with God. Because the minute I get into that part where I say, well, maybe God didn't mean what he said, that verse of scripture that was pretty crystal clear. Maybe God meant something else. And I start to bring God's words down with my opinion and man's opinion. You know what happens? I end up in sin. And when I become judge, evil follows. And that's not God's will. But God gives you a choice. Because he loves you. He wants to say, he wants to see, just in Romans 8, 28, do you love me? Are you going to choose good? And Adam and Eve brought sin into this world. The Bible says, wherefore, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Because of Adam and Eve's decision to eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, they sinned against God. God drove them out of the garden. And if you read down in Genesis chapter 5, Seth is born not in the image of God, but in the image of Adam. And everyone that's born after Adam is born with that sin nature. And you see, that's a lot of exposition. Where where, where are we getting here? Turn over to Romans chapter 1. Let's skip forward through the Old Testament. Let's just jump right to Romans chapter 1. Let's turn right to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Eve wasn't thankful enough for what God had given them, the goodness that God had. She didn't appreciate it. She took it for granted. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, verse 22, this is what the Bible says about the fall of man. It says, because that when they knew not God, this is what Adam and Eve did, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Oh, I'd like to know a little bit about good and evil. I'd like to be able to discern that for myself. Their foolish heart was darkened. 
They changed, in verse 23, the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. You know what God did in verse 24? Uh, 24? It says, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Man, ever since the garden was born into a sinful state, David said in Psalm 51, 5, he said, Behold, I was shaken in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's the state of man today. Maybe that's what brings you here this morning. Maybe you look into the world and you say, how could this world be so dark? Where is God in all this? This God that's supposed to be so good. Well, why is it that when I look around me, all I see is sin and wickedness and evil? You ever think that? You ever wonder that? You go down to Romans chapter 1. Keep going down to verse 28. This is the end of it. This is God's perspective. A lot of stuff happens in the Old Testament, but as far as the condition of man, this is what God sees. And even as they did not, verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, but being filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, Maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure and them that that do them. That's pretty dark. We just look back in Genesis 1 when God started everything off. There was light. First thing he did was he made light and he said it was good. He said let there be light. And now I see in Romans chapter 1 a world that is in darkness. Yeah. You know the Bible says that such were some of you. Such were some of you. It's easy to look at Romans chapter 1 and think wow they had a pretty bad pretty bad people. And that's how we open Romans chapter 2. Because that Romans chapter 2 points out, if it wasn't clear to you already, that's you. If you're not saved in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. But I accept from the beginning. I think most of the people in this room are saved. You know God. You're trying to love Him better, right? I want to point you back to even though that's a condition that you were in, there was a time when you were in darkness. And there was a time where maybe you felt the judgment of God. When you felt that. And you fell deeper and deeper into sin and into wickedness and just followed the lust of your own flesh. I got saved at the age of five years old. So I have a different testimony than most of the people probably in this room. But some of you I've heard, before you got saved, talk about a time where you didn't know which way was up, which way was down, and you just pursued what your flesh wanted, and just pursued that to the end, but you never got satisfied. You just kept chasing it, and chasing like a dog, chasing a car. And you get that pleasure, right? The Bible says that there's pleasure in sin for a season, but then as quick as it was there, it was gone. It was gone. And you had to go out and you had to get some more, and get some more. And you, and you put your head down at night after you were separated, maybe from your friends that you were doing all these things with, and you just felt alone. You felt separated. And you might have said to yourself, I don't know much about God, I'm not a religious person. 
But I know deep down I've done wrong. I know that I'm a sinner. And I haven't been to church much maybe, but if I came across God, I don't think it would end well for me. And that's the man's state in Romans chapter 2. It says in verse 2 and 3, it says, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Maybe you understood that you were condemned before God, but just maybe the fear of hell, the knowledge of God's judgment, maybe that didn't draw you. You just thought, well, God just malevolent God. What does he want to do with me? How can he ever forgive me? If I'm condemned already, there's nothing I can do about it. I've done so much wrong. I might as well just keep going the way that I'm going. Maybe that was you. In verse 4, I see somebody who is drawn to God by something else. Because Ephesians 5, 8 says that you were sometimes in darkness. And in John chapter 3, Jesus said that men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. Isaiah 59, 10 through 11, don't have to turn there, but this describes, maybe this was you. The people, we wait for light. But behold, obscurity for brightness, but we walk in darkness. Maybe you were sincerely just looking for God, just looking for something. We grope for the wall as the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are desolate in desolate places as dead men. But in Romans 2 verse 4 it says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Maybe it wasn't the judgment of God that drew you to Jesus Christ. Maybe that's not what's drawing you this morning. But maybe it was because one day you learned about a man who looked to the left and looked to the right and wondered that in this world of darkness that there was no man, that there was no intercessor between God and men. And so his arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness, it sustained him. Maybe you heard about a savior, the God Almighty that created this world, who died on the cross and suffered the torments of sin and hell in your place, that he took your sin and bled out for you. And you realize that, wow, that judgment, God, was just so non-negotiable that you sent your son to suffer it in my place. And you said, man, it's been dark, and I've been looking for some goodness, God, and I have just seen evil all my days, and nothing's been able to satisfy. And I don't really know what good is, but God, when I think about that Savior that died for me, if that's true, then that's good. That's good. And there's got to be some more of where that goodness came from. And the goodness of God led you to repentance. It drew you in. And I just think that's an amazing thing. That the God that started it all in light and started it all in perfection, where everything, there was nothing else you could use to describe it. It was just good. That he would see a man living in darkness and in sin and in evil, and he would appeal to his goodness to draw you back. To draw you back. To draw me back. The goodness of God leadeth a man to repentance. And so today I want to look at the goodness of God. I want to look at what that means, how we get a hold of it. You're saved this morning. Maybe you're in a place where you haven't tasted the goodness of God for a while. Maybe it's been 
God and you're looking for it and you want some of it back, I want to look at how we can get that back. Because that same goodness that led you to him to save you, he's using that same goodness to just draw you back. So like just like it was in the garden, it could go back. It could go back to just being you and him, just walking and fellowship together like the way it always was, like the way it was always supposed to be. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 34. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 34. This is the first thing that I want to talk to you today about the goodness of God. Psalm chapter 34. We're going to look at a lot of Psalm this morning. Psalm chapter 34. First thing I want to tell you about the goodness of God here. Psalm 34, verse 8. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. First thing I want to tell you about the goodness of God is that you can taste it. You can taste it. You say, this is sounding a little crazy. I don't know what I signed up for here this morning. What do you mean I can taste the goodness of God? Maybe I got you thinking about lunch right now. The goodness of God, you can taste it. Do you know that Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, Eve tasted of the fruit of that tree. Adam tasted of the fruit of that tree. They brought sin into the world. They tasted of that evil. Nothing good about that fruit. It was evil. They tasted of it. And the world was never the same since. You were never the same since. And do you know what Jesus Christ did? Jesus Christ hung on the cross and he bled out for your sin and for my sin. And the Bible said that Jesus Christ tasted death. He tasted that death for every man. Why? So that man, woman, every boy, and every girl in this room can have the opportunity to taste and to see that God is so good. Jesus did that for you. He tasted it for you. He died in your place so that you can be restored to that fellowship with God Almighty. Tasted death for every man. Let's Romans chapter 2, the goodness of God that led you to repentance. You know, maybe the first thing that you tasted, one of those qualities of God that makes him good, maybe that first thing you tasted was his mercy. Yeah. His mercy. You ever, you ever got a hold of God's mercy in your life? You know, mercy is just getting what you didn't deserve. God's just merciful. You deserve, if you're saved this morning, I know that I deserve death. I deserve hell. That was what was waiting for me. I broke God's commandments. But you know what? God was merciful. And you tasted God's mercy the day that you got saved. I want to turn to some verses about the mercy of God. Turn to uh, Psalm chapter 107. Turn to Psalm 107. We're going to spend a little time in Psalms today. Psalm 107. It's a big quality about God. You know, you, you, you look through, um, you, you follow a word through, through the Bible. You, you, you just, just do a study. You know, go back to the beginning, the first time that word is used. And you just follow it out. And you just get a blessing because you see that the Bible starts to define that word for you. You know, you may not have known what that word really meant. Or, or maybe you thought you knew what it meant, but you didn't know what it meant to God when he put it in the Bible. What the word really means to God. And if you look at the word good throughout your Bible, one of the hard things about putting a message together is you kind of just got to stay in a lane. Because you can trace the word good throughout your Bible and find so much because God is so good. But it says in Psalm 107, verse 1, this is one of the things that I'm thankful for. It says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. Why is he good, David? 
for his mercy enduring forever. Forever. Hey, let's keep going. Psalm 118. Keep turning. Keep turning. Psalm 118. This isn't my opinion here. Psalm 118, verse 1. It says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Hey, let's go to verse 29, same chapter. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. Oh, there it is again. For his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136. Psalm 136. Let's go here. Psalm 136. Let's go here to verse 1. Maybe this sounds familiar. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And in Psalm 106, 1, I'm going to turn there, it says, Praise ye the Lord. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. I don't know when you got saved. Maybe you just got saved recently. And maybe all you've tasted of God at this point in your Christian life is his mercy. Can I tell you, just stay there. Just stay there for a little bit. Get acquainted with his mercy. Get to know that God, let that draw you closer so you can learn some more. Don't ever get over the mercy of God that Jesus Christ got what he didn't deserve so that you and I can get in on something that we didn't deserve. That's his mercy. It endures forever. Don't go chasing anything else when you feel yourself down in the pits. Get a hold of God's mercy. That's his mercy. And if David could talk about the mercy of God, you get a good, good look at David's life. David saw God's mercy through and through. And you know, you know what else, what, what else is beautiful about God? Something that you can just taste it? says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know that his word is good. Amen. And his word, you can taste it. Amen. Amen. You can taste it. Amen. I'm not talking about that physical food. I'm talking about that spiritual eating from heaven. Amen. This Bible, you taste and see that the Lord is good every time you wake up in the morning and get your eyes in it. Yeah. And you get a hold of a promise. Yeah. And you remember when you first got saved and this, this Bible was new to you. Maybe that's you now. This Bible was new to you and you didn't know anything about it. But then you started to read. Maybe you started in Psalms. It's a good place to start. You just started to read and to learn about how good God is. And, and you got a hold of some promises, right? Got a hold of some promises. And it started to work something in you. Yep. And you started to say, oh, wow. I never tasted that before. That tastes good. That tastes good. I've heard a lot of words from people. I've read a lot of books. Maybe some of you are pretty well educated. You went through school. You went to graduate school. Maybe you got a doctorate in something. You studied a lot of people, a lot of philosophers. And, you know, that stuff can get your mind thinking in different areas and get different perspectives on things. And I'm not necessarily knocking all of that. But it doesn't taste like the Bible does. Because those men are just men. And all that stuff that they're reasoning, at the end of the day, you know what happens to that guy that has this brilliant idea that for maybe a century everyone's, you know, quoting this guy and saying, oh man, this guy had a break. You know what happens? Somebody else comes along, maybe like a hundred years later, maybe not that long after, maybe a couple years later in the information age that we live in, right? Somebody else comes along. You know what happens? We forget about what that other guy said. We say, oh, no, this guy said, this is what I agree with. And it just keeps going on and on and on. And if you're trusting what that other guy said, well... What does that mean about your trust? It's all God. You're believing a lie. You're believing something in vain. There's something better. But God's word is perfect. And if you're trusting God's word, you taste and you see how perfect and how good it is. I want to bring this down a little bit more personal. So Psalm 119, verse 103. You say, 
Alright, you say the word taste good. What do you mean it tastes good? No, I mean like you could actually, there's, there's, a, there's a, an actual taste. You can describe it. When you think about tasting stuff, you've got taste buds, you got different sensations, you know, some things are sour, some things are salty, right? Let's see the word of God. It says in Psalm 119, verse 103. If you want to turn there, you don't have to. But David said, How sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yay! Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. You know, it says that in Hebrews chapter chapter six. You're gonna turn there, but something about um, tasting, actually tasting of the heavenly gift, and talking about tasting of the good words of God. David said that it was like honey on his lips. In the Old Testament, you had the uh, the children of Israel. They wandered around in the wilderness, wandered around in the wilderness, and God fed them in the wilderness with this thing called man, which just means what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. It was man, right? But if you actually study that thing out, that God fed them in the Bible, man, you know, there's a, a spiritual parallel to the Word of God. Because the manna, they had to get up every morning, they had to collect it, but they couldn't hold on to any of it for the next day. The next day, they had to use up all the manna that they had, and they had to go get some more man. Just like you and I, we've got to read the Bible, we've got to get in His Word, we've got to taste it, we've got to soak it in, but then the next day, we've got to do it again. Because what happened yesterday, the message I'm preaching today, I hope you're not leaning out to get you through tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. You got to get tasting the God's word every single day, right? That's what the children of Israel did. Spiritually, Jesus Christ, John chapter 1, is the word of God. Jesus Christ revealed himself also as the bread of life. Jesus Christ, God's word, you got to taste Jesus Christ through the words of the Bible. Start to see how sweet he is, how good he is. David said it was like honey on his lips. Let's go back to that manna, because maybe you're saying, I have manna. What would it taste like? I think the psalmist in, in Psalm 78 talks about man did eat angels food, right? Amen. You know what that man tasted like? You're going to turn there and taking notes. It says in Exodus chapter 16, verse 31, it says it was like wafers made with honey. Woo! With honey. Nice. And in Numbers chapter 11, verse 8, it said they made it into cakes. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. Amen. The taste of fresh oil. I know I'm going to make you guys some alcohol pretty hungry right now. <laughs> We've got a lot of Italians in this room, right? My last name's Andino. I'm not Italian. I'm actually Puerto Rican. I don't know if that offends anybody. I'll get over it. Don't worry about it. But I, I was a real love pasta. Love pasta. I love to cook pasta, and there's just something about when you make pasta. It's real simple. You make some pasta with some garlic, and you put the olive oil in there. But hear me out. Let's go down this lane just a little bit. You don't get that olive oil, you know, the mass market, supermarket produced one. You know, if you're gonna make something where the olive oil is gonna be a main ingredient, you're really gonna taste it. You gotta get the good one. You ever, you ever, I don't know if some of you maybe have uh, been to Italy, had the olive oil from there, right? Maybe some of you gone down to your, you know, the Lodi's or whatever spiritual supermarket you go to, and you get that fresh pressed olive oil, right? It's different. It's different. You get it with different flavors, right? But there's like a richness. You can only have so much, right? There's a, there's a richness out of that. It's, it's pure. It's good, right? And you get a taste of that, and it's just like, oh man, it's good. No, a lot of you hungry right now, right? But that's what the, the word is likened to. It's, it's, it's rich. It tastes like oil. It's, it's rich. When you think about that, that flavor profile, man, you get a hold of God's word. It should be so rich that you just, I can only eat so much. You know, David said that his cup overflowed. And that's what God wants. He says the richest of his goodness, the richest of his goodness, not something superficial that you just taste and say, that was okay, but he wants you to just get so weaned off the world and so in love with his word that you're just longing for it, like you long for that rich oil. Talk about honey. 
honey is sweet. But again, maybe all you know is that supermarket honey. My father-in-law, you know you'd understand this, love my father-in-law. He will try things that I'd never even think about trying, but he took up beekeeping about a year or two ago. He's got this Eastern European guy that comes, I don't think he speaks a lick of English, but he's got bees in the yard, and I'm terrified of bees, so I don't say anywhere near that thing. But I've tasted of the honey that comes out of that. Oh, man, there's nothing like it. And not like you can't go back to that orange blossom or put that bear in the microwave after you had some of that honey. It's good. It's sweet. It's, it, but, but again, it's, it's, it's rich. It's rich. And the Bible talks about eating honey. But you can only have so much of it. And the, you know, this word of God, it's got to have that place in our heart. And I mean, the word, this, this message just broke me up this week because it's got to have a place in my heart. Or just like you got that something rich that you're craving, you only eat so much. But the next day, you, when you're hungry again, it's like, oh man, I need some of that again. I need some of that again because it's just so good. It's just so good. And this Bible, this book, it could be that in your life. You could have the riches of his goodness in your life if you would just fall in love and taste and see that God is so good. God is so good. Turn with me uh, to the book of Ezekiel. Book of Ezekiel. I just want to show some uh, spiritual examples here. Book of Ezekiel. Y'all staying with me this morning? Yeah, right, amen. Uh, turn to Ezekiel chapter 3. I know we're flipping, uh, flipping around a lot, but hey, listen, it's first Bible church. It's first Bible church. Got to put the Bible first. Because, and we're going to get to this later, but if the Bible's not first, what we're doing here is real dangerous, all right? Bible's got to be first. We've got to find out what God says about things. Ezekiel chapter 3. Let's look at verse, uh, verse 1 and 3. <clears throat> Just go back a second to uh, chapter 2, verse 8. It says here, Thou son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. And when I looked, behold, and hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. And there was written there in lamentations and mourning and woe. It was handed over to Ezekiel, some of his word. Verse chapter 3. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest, eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll, and he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee, then did I eat. And it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Just consistently, just how consistent this book is, just consistently throughout the Bible, just this, how sweet are those words, like David said, like honey on Ezekiel's lips. But if you turn with me to Revelation, turn with me to Revelation, chapter 10. Jump to our next point here, Revelation chapter 10, I want to just uh, to look at this for a second. <clears throat> So Revelation chapter 10, and also since you're going in that direction, um, put a bookmarker, your finger in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 10. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 10, beginning of this chapter, there's a mighty angel coming down from heaven. Um, we are not going to get into the doctrine application of, of, of this chapter, but Revelation chapter 10, you got John sees this angel, and this angel has a book in his hand, and he's told to ask for that book. In verse 8, he said, The voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, 
which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. John's seeing some crazy stuff, seeing this angel standing over the head of the earth and the seas. He's got this book, and there's thunder coming down, and it's a crazy scene. And in verse 9, he says, I went unto the angel, and I said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. Again, eat up God's words, and it shall make thy belly bitter. But it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth. There it is. Uh, my mouth. There it is again. Sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. My belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Once you start to get a taste of God's word, you start to taste how sweet it is, how rich it is. When you start to actually start doing what it's telling you to do, you know, sometimes when it goes down, it feels a little bitter. Because sometimes you start that judgment of God, starting to convicting you of some things that you need to change in your life. Because God's word is good. It's still sweet. But you got that that flesh that doesn't want to hear it. Doesn't really want to get on board with everything that God's saying. Doesn't want to get on board with that. And you got to fight against that. And you got to get to that point where God is true and every man is a liar. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, there's that two-edged of God's word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it's a double-edged sword. And I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm saying this that if you're going to get serious about God, about his goodness, this is part of it. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God, as you read it, it starts to read you back. And then you got some decisions, decisions that you gotta make. And so the next part, the next part of God's goodness that I want to talk about, if you've tasted it, is that the goodness of God, it's gotta go to work. The goodness of God's gotta go to work in your life. It's gotta go to work. Turn to Philippians chapter one. Turn to Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter 1. We go down to verse 6. It says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The day you got saved, you know what? God started a good work in you. Just like back at the beginning, God's work, it was all good. He's going to start that same, he started that same work in you. He said he started a good work in you. And you know what else it says? It's a promise that he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ calls you home, he's going to perform that good work. But here's the amazing thing. That back in Genesis, when God first started all this out, it was just God. God did the work. God made it, and it was perfect. But you know what God gives you and I an opportunity to do? gives us an opportunity to get involved in the work that he's doing in us. Go down to Philippians chapter 2. Just look at the page. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, 
not as in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. God put that good work in you. He's going to finish it, but you got to work out your own salvation yourself. you got to get in the yoke with God. And you got to be that fellow laborer in Jesus Christ because God's not going to force your hand. Remember, we talked about Genesis 1. We talked about the promised land and how if you want to pursue evil, that opportunity is going to be there. God's going to, that, it's there. You've got a free will. God gave it to you. But if you love him, if you love him, you're going to choose to do good. You're going to cease to do evil. You're going to learn to do well. And you're going to get in the yoke with God. You're going to start working out your own salvation. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to bring forth that fruit that he wanted from the beginning. When he gave Adam and Eve, he gave mankind that instruction to be fruitful and to multiply and replenish the earth. And replenish the earth. And all of us as Christians today, we've all been called into that good work. I hope that when you're sitting here this morning, that you don't look around and see people that get in front of here or sing a song or teach a Sunday school class or hold up a sign, whatever the case might be, and say, wow, they must be called to the ministry. Good for those people. I'm really glad that those people exist. I'm waiting for my call one day. One day God's going to call me to the mission to, uh, to the ministry. One day God's going to call me to the mission field, and then I'm going to start working for God. I hope that's not your attitude today. I don't think it is, but I just hope that's not your attitude today. Because if you are saved in Jesus Christ, you've already received the ministry in the Lord. Every one of us is called to the ministry in Jesus Christ. I don't know what that looks like for you. But you've been called to minister to Jesus Christ. There is something that God wants you to do. Otherwise, you and I would not be here. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. He can use anybody. Here's the problem. I hope that we're not looking around and just saying, maybe one day I'll find out where my spiritual gift is and I'll give that to God. Maybe God will just convict me of that and I'll give that to God. Look for that, that talent. Because those people, they've got some kind of talent. I just got to find that talent and, and, and that's what I'm going to give to God. That stuff, talent, I hope you don't look around just looking for talent. Because you know what talent does more than anything? Talent covers up a lot of flaws. That's what talent really does. It covers up a lot of flaws. God's not impressed with talent. God's not impressed with talent at all. You know, and, and, and I think if you're honest with yourself, you're not impressed with talent either. Think about uh, sports. Right? Think about sports. How many first-round draft picks, right? You might know of that. That make it into the NFL, the NBA, whatever your, your, your favorite league is, right? And maybe they never play it down. They never play an inning, right? They never actually see the court. And it's like, wow, they were a first-round draft pick. They had all these accolades. They were all Americans. And they just ended up being bust. They ended up just being busted. This guy that went undrafted, he ended up outworking that person. I'm impressed with that person, but I'm not impressed with the guy that was all talented and that didn't do anything, right? Why? Because more often than not, that talented person, when he finally got to that level where it actually meant something, there was some flaw in him or that flaw in her that they just fizzled out. They just fizzled out. And maybe they were able to get by at the lower levels because that talent covered up those flaws, covered up those sins. A lot of those people might have character issues, you know, they're not hardworking, might have addictions, could be drugs, could be alcohol, could be a whole host of things. Got criminal issues, right? And maybe no one hears about that, but not necessarily, here's the scary part, not necessarily because nobody knew about it at the lower levels. No, there might have been somebody that knew about it, but they covered it up. And they let that person keep doing what they were doing because just let the good times roll. So everything, as long as they're looking the part and they're playing the part, let's just keep it going and, uh, and we'll be good. 
Let me say why I say that. Because a lot of times in our own lives, that's the way that we look at people. We let people influence us. We let people, you know, say something, and we start to gravitate to those people because they've got a way with words. They look the part. They speak the part, right? And if that's you today, if you see somebody, you know what you got to do? You got to look at God's work, and you got to get God's opinion on a thing. And you got to look to see what qualities that God says about leaders, that God says about those that are living righteously. Pride's not one of them. And so if you start seeing stuff like that come out, you got to take a step back. And you know, some people will say, well, you know, God can use anybody. You know, that person, I might not agree with them on everything, but, you know, they're saying the right things, and I agree with them on this, and, you know, God can use anybody. That's true. God can also get water out of a rock. And if God can use the person you do like, you know what that means? God can use anybody? You just told me God can use the, use the person you don't like either. And you and I are instructed, we got to pray for all of our leaders. That might not sit well with me. That might not sit well with you. And I'm not angry at anybody, and I'm not trying to harp on anything about how you judge character outside of church. That, that's, that, that, that's your business. I don't really lose sleep over that. But this is what I fear, is that if that's the attitude that you judge people outside, then how's the attitude when you judge people in here? How do you judge people in here? Because if all it takes is for somebody to come in here to find what you value, to find what you think sounds good, something that you'll say amen, uh, amen along to, knowing that you'll just lay everything else aside and just not even notice all that stuff, just sweep all that stuff under the rug, and you let that person come in and influence you and lead you, so you know what? We are all in for a world of hurt. If you and I are not comparing everything against God's word, we're just going on the ambitions of our heart, and somebody can come in here and do exactly like that. You know, Judas just showed up on the scene. He just showed up on the scene. He looked apart, looked like one of the disciples, like everybody else. The Antichrist is going to do the same thing. He's going to deceive a lot of people. You know, at my job, we get these, um, uh, you might have at your job too, these like phishing emails, these tests internally for cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is a big thing today. People can just take down a whole system by getting a virus in, getting ransomware and stuff. But you know that that stuff that takes down an organization that compromises accounts and stuff, it's usually not just some external threat that comes in and just guns blaze and takes you out. And it's not going to, before it's going to be the, the, the government or something else that comes and shuts this thing down and takes this thing away. You know how the cybersecurity threats come in? Is they find somebody that's willing to just click that suspicious link and not think about twice about it. And say, ah, that doesn't sound right, but let's just go with it anyway. And then internally, that's when the virus starts to spread. Now an organization completely compromised. And if you and I don't compare everything against God's word, that's how stuff comes in. The wolves come in dressed up like sheep. We've had some wolves come in here before. And thank God, God was merciful. But it caused a little bit of a damage. There's some people that aren't here anymore with us because some wolves got in and drew some people away. And you can't just rely on your pastor and your elders to flesh all that stuff out. No, you can't. 
Because when the enemy comes to the city to try to take it down, the enemy counts the towers. And the enemy looks to see where all the strongholds are. And it doesn't go for the strongholds. It tries to sleep in through the cracks. It tries to sweep in through the cracks. And so my admonition, my warning to each and every one of us is if you hear something that doesn't sound right, somebody trying to persuade you in a way that doesn't line up with God's word, and you see it, nah, I don't like where this is going. Don't go telling your neighbor. Don't go spreading that thing. Find your discipler. Find your um, uh, Mike Murphy. You got Eli. You got Pastor Pat. Let them know about it because you got to keep this place safe. Just like you see on those subways, see something, say something, got to keep this place safe. You can't be relying just on town and what you see. That's what he did. That's what he did. That's how the evil came in. Instead, I want you to turn here. I want you to turn here to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. When I'm saying this stuff, I'm talking, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not above reproach in any of the stuff that I'm saying either. You see something about me, you see me trying to do something, and you say, oh, no, he's a kid. No, 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 no. You got to compare it against God's word. You got to compare it against God's word. I'm putting myself out there too. That's how important this thing is. You got to be jealous about what God's given us here. And in 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says in verse 17, it says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Listen, I say all this to say this, is that I've known Pastor Pat since I was seven, yeah, seven years old. So that's going on 22 years. I feel really old just saying that. I probably feel pretty old just saying that too. But when I grew up in First Bible Church, and I know Pastor Pat for a long time, and I know growing up that he's super smart guy, super talented guy, can speak. He's got a uh, he can command a room. He's got intelligence. He can sing. He's got all those things. And I remember being young and looking at him like, wow, Pastor Pat's a really talented guy. That always impressed me. No, me. And then as I got older, I. Went to college, went to law school, sat under some of those professors, went to Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Supreme Court justices, all that stuff. And you start to realize that for all the talent that people have, you know what really separates people from the path? It's the work that they put in. It's that hard work that they put in. And one of the things that impressed upon me ever since that, as I've gotten older, about Pastor Pat, is not the gifts that he has, but the work that he's willing to put in, especially when it comes to the Word of God. The Bible says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this isn't about putting people on a pedestal. The Bible says, Bible it says in verse 17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the Word and doctrine. Don't muzzle the ox. Don't ever take it for granted that our pastor Pat loves us enough that he would labor in God's Word so that he could bring it every single day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whether he's putting something on the YouTube, whether he's preaching on a uh, Thursday, doing something on a Sunday, he's got a lot going on in his life too. But you know what I see about Pastor Pat that's impressed upon me, that has convicted me, is that you know what, regardless of what's going on in your life and in my life, if you know God and you've tasted of his goodness, oh man, if you would just put in the work and just see what God will use of you and bring out 
for His glory if you're willing to work. That's what the people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that God called out, that's what was special about them. Think about uh, uh, Elisha. Elisha, you come onto the scene, he's out there in the field just in the yoke with oxen. I mean, he just probably looked like a crazy person. Probably just out of the farms. I mean, he was just laboring and laboring and laboring. Elijah came and said, yeah, this, this is the guy. He called, Elisha came. God called Elisha, saw Elisha out there laboring. David was out in the field as a shepherd. Nobody knew what David was doing out there. David would come in and tell, tell his dad and tell his brothers about his dad. Nobody paid attention to him. David was just the youngest, right? He was just out there. But he was working and he was doing it consistently. Where did Jesus find some of his disciples? Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, where did he find them? He found them just working. They were just out there throwing their nets out there, and they were working. You know what it says about, about those guys that, that, that just speaks to me? Is that if you're willing to put the work in, God will just use whatever it is that you give him. But just give it to him. Just give it to him. And say to yourself, I'm going to work out the salvation. I'm going to work out my own salvation. And I'm not talking about just showing up and going through the most. I'm talking about that work of getting into his word and just saying, God, what's wrong with me? Where do I need to change? Can you work that stuff out so that it can be used for your glory? And then if God calls you to do something and you, you, you feel led that you're going to go preach a message, you're going to go share a gospel track, you're going to go be a witness to somebody, whatever it is, you just do all that for his glory. You just keep showing up and showing up and showing up. Not because of, not for uh, eye service as men pleasers, but because you just love God and you just know God's just been so good to you. And God, if I could just give you something so you can bring some good out of me like you wanted way back in the beginning, then that's enough. And that's enough. And you know a guy like Elisha, you know what that tells me about somebody that's just willing to put the work in, doesn't care about the town, just willing to put the work in? That person starts to realize that what God does in that person's life, they start to really appreciate everything that God did. Because they knew they didn't bring anything to the table. They didn't rely on anything they brought to the table. But God just worked miracles again and again and again in their life. Because they just, they knew that God could do it because he just said, Lord, just give, just give yourself to me. And when Elijah went up, and when Jesus went up, you know, it says about the disciples that they were men that turned the world upside down. And when Elijah went up, you know what Elisha did? He, before Elijah went up, Elisha asked for a double portion of what Elijah had. And he picked up the mantle of Elijah, and he smoked the waters, and he asked, where is the God of Elijah? Because if you're willing to just put the work in and let God work in you, you're not impressed with that spiritual leader in your life. You're not impressed with the talent that they bring. You know what you're impressed with? You're impressed with the God that works something through them. Is that what your heart is this morning? Is that my hearts this morning? I pray that that's the heart of this church. That the heart of this church is just a heart of humility. We want to just put our heads down and to work and not to esteem anybody higher than they need to be esteemed, but just esteem God and Jesus Christ. And that we would just be willing to just let God work because God is so good. God is so good. And let's finish here. Let's finish here. Turn to, um, to Psalm chapter 27. One last thing about <clears throat> One last thing about the goodness of God. If it feels like I'm yelling at you this morning, it's not the case. I'm sorry. I'm not yelling at you this morning because God just you know got into His Word and then He starts you know breaking up things inside of you and just selling you things that are wrong with you and starts turning that work. You know, when God was in the, in, in the beginning, you know He made.
made man out of dry ground. He made the beast out of the dry ground. God got his hands dirty and got in that dirt. And you know what you got to do sometimes? You just got to churn up this fallow ground. And you got to just let God, let that seed get in some good soil. And just pray that God's just going to yield some fruit when you just realize just how good God is. And how miserable and how wicked you are. And the fact that God would actually take the time to lead you to repentance because of his goodness. And just keep drawing you back and drawing you back and drawing you back. If that doesn't impress you and if that doesn't lead you to him, then I don't have anything for you. I don't have anything for you. God is just so good. He's so good. And in Psalm chapter 27, verse 13, it says, this is our last point, I fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So I'm going to turn there, but it says here in Lamentations 3, verses 25 to 26, it says, the Lord is good, He's good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Nahum 1, verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and knoweth them that trust in him. Trusting in God, waiting on his goodness, God knows. God knows your heart. God knows. Verse 13, our last point here, he said, I have fainted unless I have believed to see the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. We talked about tasting God's word, getting it inside you, letting it work something out of you, being a doer of the word, not just a hearer also. Got to put some, some, some uh, feet to that faith, right? But you know, sometimes the goodness of God, you got to believe it to see it. Uh, goodness of God sometimes is not just right there at the surface. God wants to see how far are you willing to trust Him, how far you're willing to go, how far you're willing for Him to lead you so you see that goodness. In this chapter, Psalm chapter 27 is a special chapter to me. I was going to, uh, I spoke to you earlier about how my testimony might be different from yours. I grew up in church and I was saved at the age of five years old. And you might say, how could somebody get saved at the age of five years old? Well, I remember uh, it was December of 1998 that I got saved. I remember earlier that year, it was March of 1998, and I remember actually uh, Marie's son, Stephen, came to our house, and my dad sat down and uh, was leading him to the Lord, and it was that point in their conversation where my dad turned to me and said, hey, son, you want to get saved? You want to know how to be saved? And I just told him, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Something about it, I just knew. I just, I, I didn't, I wasn't ready. I didn't understand it fully. My good father didn't push it and say, oh, come on, son, you gotta get saved. Didn't push it. Later that year, December 3rd, 1998, I remember it being about 9 o'clock in the evening, sitting down with the devotional, my dad and my brother Mark, and we're just in our, in our room, and we had our devotional, and afterwards, you know, my, I don't know if my dad had suggested it, and Mark had said it, who it was, but said, do you want to get saved? And I said, yes, I do. I knew that at that point that Jesus Christ had died on the cross for my sins. I knew that I was a sinner. And I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior that day. I bowed my head and I prayed and I looked up. And I knew when I looked up that at that moment I knew God. Now you may not believe me, that's fine. But I knew that I knew God at the age of five years old. And I say this all to say this is that we got a lot of young people in our room, we got a lot of kids. Don't ever underestimate the power of God's word, the power of your testimony on their life. 
I take it very seriously that I have the privilege to teach our Sunday school kids because I was once a Sunday school kid, and I know what God did in my life at a young age because just like you might have gotten saved at 30 years old and you didn't start to see some fruits, maybe you're 31, 32, 33, whatever it was, I was saved at five years old, and God showed me things at a young age. And I was about 11 years old. I remember I was about 11 years old, and there was a period of time for about a year and a half where I had dealt with this thing where there would come moments in the day when I would get this overwhelming fear that my parents, if they were out or whatever, that they wouldn't come back. I got this overwhelming, this kind of like cloud came over me. We were going out to the supermarket, I was sitting in the car with my, my brother or whatever. I would just get this fear that, you know, like my mom wasn't coming back, you know. And it's, it's, it sounds silly, but for a kid 11 years old, you know, that's it's a pretty scary thing, right? And I remember feel, feeling that Sometimes the whole family would be together and I would feel there's nothing I could do about it. And I would tell people, I would tell my parents, tell my brother, whoever, and they would say, you know, pray about it, read God's word. But they didn't know what to do for me. They couldn't do anything for me. And it was worse at night because sometimes at night I wouldn't be able to sleep because I would just, I just had this cloud, this feeling. You know, that Bob calls it a spirit of fear, that spirit of fear. I don't know, maybe you got a spirit of fear that just sometimes you get that cloud that works on your life. I can't explain it. I can't explain it away for you. But you know what I started to do? I just started to get into God's Word. And I just started to read through these Psalms. Started to read through Psalms talking about how it laid me down and slept and that I wait for the Lord to save me. I just started to. I just started to. Uh, to get a hold of God's Word. And it would give me peace. The feeling wouldn't necessarily go away, but it would get me through the night. But then sometimes the next day, you know what happened? That feeling would come again. That spirit of fear, that cloud, it would come again. And I would say to God, you know, what do I need to do for you to get rid of this? What do I need to do? And God showed me, and uh, you don't have to, uh, to turn there. But God showed me, just like he showed Paul, the book of 2 Corinthians. Just like you showed Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about in verse 7, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I started to learn about Paul and that Paul had this messenger of Satan, had this thing that was bothering him, this thorn in his flesh, and he had asked God three times to take it away. And I remember asking God over and over, God, can you just take this away? Can you just take this away? I don't know what to do to get rid of this. And God made me wait for about a year and a half, just like he made Paul wait. And he made Paul wait so that he could teach Paul that, you know what, God's grace, no matter what you're going through in your life, is sufficient for thee. It's sufficient for you. And you know what God showed me? I will never forget the day that that, 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 that time in my life finally ended. I will never forget that day. You can't take that from me. You can't tell me that God's not real. Because in Psalm chapter 27, it's the reason why this chapter has a special place for me. It says, when my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Amen. Then the Lord will take me up. You know what God was showing me that, that, that through, through all that? There was a moment I was sitting in the car, my mom had gone around and there, and that feeling started to come again, and the Lord brought this verse to my mind. And he said, you know what, son? There's going to come a day, might be tomorrow, might be next month, might be years from now, 
where your parents aren't going to beat it anymore. And when that day comes, no matter what it is, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust me. Because I love you more than your parents ever could. And I realized throughout that time that God was proven to me. God had become my God. And he wasn't just the God of my parents. And at the age of 11 years old, that's what God showed to me. And when I acknowledged that, I had to get to the place where I had to say, you know what? Either you're God or you're not God. But if you're God, that's a promise. You're never going to forsake me. You'll take me up. You'll take me up. And I don't say this to be self-serving. I show some imagination. I say this, and we're going to end here. Is that some of you people might be going through some things in your life. Some things that are a lot more life-threatening. Some things that have been going on for a lot longer time than what I just shared with you today. But the Lord showed me for that year and a half. You know what the Lord had me do? He had me taste and see that he was so good. Amen. He had me start to really work it out in my life. Really see how far I was going to go. Really believe to see the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. And if you're going through a trial right now. There's people in this room that have been gone through some things, and they can give you some comfort. They can share something through God's word. You can lean on those people. As I said this morning, this place is a hospital. This place is a hospital. You know what the Bible says? That hope deferred maketh the heart sick. But when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. It is a tree of life. I want you to finish, and I want you to turn to the last chapter of your Bible. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 22. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 22. Because we spent most of the time this morning, and I thank you for your kind attention, we spent most of the time this morning talking about Genesis chapter 1, the decision that Adam and Eve had made and brought sin into this world because they ate of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. But you know there was another tree in the midst of that garden. And you might say to yourself, yeah, what, what, what did God do with that tree of life? Well, he had to take it away because Adam and Eve had to be separated from God about sins in the world. They couldn't eat of that tree of life. But I find in my Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, that tree's coming back. God just, he's, he's pruning it right now. He's just waiting for a day when there's going to be no more curse. There's going to be no more sin. And I read here, Listen, if this doesn't grab you, I don't have anything for you. In Revelation chapter 22, the Lord spoke this to me. He said, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river. And there, the tree of life, I see a throne of God and of the Lamb, and I see a pure river of water of life. Man, if that's not a picture of the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 of God and the Son speaking creation to existence and the Holy Spirit moving on the face of the waters, then I don't know what is. And I see here, we're going to see this someday. It says in the midst of the street, of it, there's a river there. And you know what? There is rooted on either side of that river, deep down, drawn up its nutrients, is the tree of life, which bears 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the yields of the tree and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, 
and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. You know something? If your heart is sick this morning, even if you're saved, your heart is sick this morning, and maybe that hope is a little bit deferred right now. You know what the Bible says? That when that desire cometh, it is a tree of life. Why a tree of life? That's a good tree because the goodness of God endureth continually. Continually. I don't know what that's going to look like in your life. God might not answer your promise the way that you think he's going to answer your promise, but it's going to be a tree of life. It's going to be some perpetual and eternal goodness that God is going to show you through that thing. And if you are saved this morning, you've been called according to his purpose. If you love God, which I believe you do, if you're just trying to love God a little bit more and a little bit more, you've got a promise in God's word in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good. For good. For good. Amen? Pastor. So grab a hymnal and let's stand.